Matthew chapter 11, we begin in verse 16 where Jesus says, But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. In this chapter, chapter 11, Jesus has been defending the ministry of John the Baptist. The chapter began with a request by John. Remember in verse 1 and 2 and 3, he asked the question, are you the one or are we looking for someone else? The request brought reassurances by Jesus. Proof for John. And then praise for John. But now Jesus will address the issue of prejudice against John. And then Jesus will rebuke the cities, or at least three of them in Galilee. This is significant. And the reason why it's significant, because this is the first mention of rebuke and condemnation in the gospel. Jesus rebukes the childish crowd and the cities for their witness of his miracles and then their rejection of him. You know, this last few days, there was a, a news item that came on uh, the news. It was either two days ago or a day ago. In Colorado Springs, militant atheists purchased a billboard. The Fox News headline read, Go ahead, skip church. The billboard features, as you can see, a smiling Santa Claus with his finger over his lips with the ta text, just be good for goodness sake. Happy holidays. The signs appear in Colorado Springs, Colorado and Raleigh, North Carolina, and you can see it's a project done by American Atheist Program Director Nick Fish. And he says that his group, his group has, has put up this billboard because they want to combat stereotypes. You know, what's interesting to me is what prejudice and stereotype do you think that they're combating? That atheists don't believe? You know, it's not a stereotype if it's true. I mean, if you see an Italian person with spaghetti sauce all over their shirt, it may make you laugh, but it just means he's enjoying his spaghetti. The Bible urges people to be childlike, but not childish. But spoiled children who demand entertainment and something new didn't begin in our generation. Jesus also spoke to a generation who refused to be serious about the issues of life and death. And so the, the, the atheist might be thinking, well, we want to combat stereotypes. Like what? 
that an atheist doesn't believe in God or that an atheist still has some unresolved issues themselves. Remember that just being an atheist doesn't mean that you don't believe anything. You believe something. You believe that something came from nothing. You still don't have an explanation how nothing becomes something and then how something becomes animated and then self-aware. The atheist-sponsored billboard encourages Christians, go ahead, skip church. I think that this is interesting. Remember their message. Their message is stay away from church, boycott church, just be good for goodness sake. But I'm going to issue a different invitation. I'm going to invite you to boycott unbelief. And embrace repentance and rejoice. It's interesting. Because when you look at Matthew chapter 11 verse 16. It begins with excuses for the the king. Jesus is going to present one of many parables that he's going to speak throughout this gospel. He, He begins by saying but what... But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to their companions. You see, the people of Israel were a privileged generation. The two most important people in God's redemptive history were living at that time and teaching right in their midst. They were able to hear the words of John the Baptist with their own ears. They were eyewitnesses to the teaching of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus. Haven't you ever, ever thought that if you could go back in time and space and you could witness just one point in all of human history, wouldn't this be the time? Wouldn't you have loved to have heard Jesus with your own ears, see him with your own eyes, witness the miracles? Wouldn't you have love to have been there on Easter morning to visit the empty tomb and see the seal broken, knowing that he had really risen from the dead. I want you to think about it for just a moment. They were eyewitnesses of the teaching of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus, but the generation seemed closed to the message. And so Jesus compares the people of Israel to spoiled children determined to have their own way playing a game. There's two visions that emerge in the New Testament. Clearly the Bible says that you must become like a child, but he's not talking about becoming childish. There's a big difference. In the ancient world, marketplaces were the, were the place, just like the name implies, where people would go to buy and sell and trade goods and services. Buying, selling, and trading was sometimes a daily affair for some, a weekly affair for others. But as you can imagine, moms and dads would bring their children into the marketplace and children would do in the marketplace what children do everywhere in the world. They form friendships. They form relationships. They want to play with each other. That doesn't shock you or surprise you. In every generation, children play. What did you play when you were a kid growing up? Some of you might have played soldiers or house or or dress up or makeup. In the 1950s, it wasn't unusual for boys to play Cowboys and Indians. And some of you are old enough to remember the commercials of Susie Homemaker and have easy bake ovens. My brother and I, we would play Star Trek. He would be Captain Kirk and I would be everybody else on board. (laughs) And we would have deep space adventures. And as strange as it may seem, in the first century, children were fond of playing wedding and funeral. And you might think that that's unusual, but really, is it all that unusual? Remember what weddings and funerals are. It's a time of drama. It's a time of emotion. It's a time of profound sorrow or great joy. 
Part of the point that you have to remember is that's what children do. They play things that elicit emotion. Children pretend to do what adults did for real. In the late 50s, in the early 60s, as hard as it is for some of you to believe, in candy stores, they would offer little candy packets of cigarettes. Some of you are old enough to remember. Maybe you were even old enough when you were a kid to go in and buy it, and you would just pretend. You would pretend to smoke. Children pretend to do what adults do for real. But these children were determined to have their own way. They won't repent with John and they won't repent with or rejoice with Jesus. And so look what Jesus says in verse 17. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. In what sense? In the sense of the wedding. We mourned to you and you did not lament. In what sense? In the ancient culture, when a burial was taking place, everyone in the community would join in on the sorrow. So you can imagine with the wedding came great joy. With the funeral came great sorrow. In verse 18, Jesus says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. Jesus is going to liken the ministry of John the Baptist to a funeral. John's message emphasized repentance, dying to self, changing your mind, a change of heart, a certain judgment that was on its way. He himself lived a life of radical self-denial. And in verse 19, it says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. The description that Jesus provides is first in relationship to John the Baptist. And then to himself. He is the son of man. This is his favorite title for himself. Now, I want you to think about what's happening. The children are neither content with the message of John, and they're not content with the message of Jesus. They won't accept the discipline, severity, asceticism of John, typified by self-denial and fasting in verse 18. Or the gracious social interactions typified by the event that we've already seen in Matthew's banquet. Remember when Jesus calls Matthew into a right relationship with himself. Matthew throws a gigantic party and he invites all of his sinner friends over. The self-denial of John was chalked up to demonic influence. The libertine or freedom of Jesus was chalked up as an accusation of excess. But we're either true. Let's be blunt just for a moment. Did John have a demon? No. Was Jesus ever guilty of overindulgence? Not ever. You see, what both accusations have in common is they're both false. And you should note that right from the start because the children, the children, the children weren't prepared for the truth. And it wasn't the truth that really mattered. They were unwilling to repent of their sin. They were unwilling to experience the joy and the celebration and the freedom that God has given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The attitude of the children described revealed this severe disconnect with the revelation that God had given in both Jesus and in John. It also revealed their profound disconnect from spiritual values. We might say that foolishness is justified by her children. Locked up in the foolish child's heart is often anger or bitterness or immaturity. 
You may as a child had someone say to you or even as a parent say to your own children, stop acting like a child. Now, it seems like the appropriate thing when when your child goes, but I am a child. I think of someone who said, a father said to his child, you know, when I was your age, I had already graduated from college. And the child responded with, well, now I forgot the joke. (laughs) It was something like, oh, when George Washington was your age, he had already done such and such and such and such. And the child said, when George Washington was your age, he was president of the United States. That's how it goes. Children can sometimes have some very clever things to say. They have some some unique ways of looking at things. But what does the foolishness of, of the child confirm? For Jesus, it's that the methods and the message of God are true. Wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and gentle. Wisdom and truth will justify itself no matter how unreasonable the criticism. That's what Jesus means when he says, but wisdom is justified by her children. In what sense? Wisdom and truth will justify itself no matter how childish selfish, or perverse the attitude. John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking means that he lived a life of discipline, self-sacrifice, self-denial. The people resented this. And so they accused John of having a devil. John insisted that the people... Not be simply spiritual shoppers picking and choosing from some philosophical smorgasbord. Like our atheist friends who host the the billboard. What they invite you to do is to look to yourself and look to reason. But they don't always tell you about the limits of reason. John insisted that the people not simply be shopping around for a right way of thinking, but that they choose, that they make a decision. And this becomes an important part of this message. John called people to make a decision about their friendship and fellowship with God. He called people to identify the problem that they had in their heart and a willingness to turn from their sin and to turn to God. To cry out to him, to seek his grace, to seek his mercy, to seek his forgiveness. But the people grew tired of John's message. And instead of turning from their sin, they began to question John's righteousness. Hence, he has a devil. Hey, wait a minute, John. What makes you so great? Who appointed you to be the spokesperson for God? What makes you so special? You're not any better than anyone else. You Christians, you think you're so good. You think you're so holy. You think that you're better than everyone else. And of course, you know that when the critic makes that comment, you know that that's that's exactly the opposite of what you think. It isn't you thinking that you're better than anyone else. It's you thinking that you're way worse. And if they knew the truth about you, they wouldn't even speak to you. But the only thing that makes you different is the fact that God in his grace and his mercy has revealed the circumstances of your heart and decided to forgive you. Like so many people who preach a message of judgment, John's message stung and bruised the conscience. And then came the comments. John, why can't you just get a haircut? Why can't you wear something a little more presentable? 
Why can't you be a little more loving? Why can't you be a little more tolerant? Why can't you be a little more accepting? John, why can't you just give a positive message? Why can't you say something like, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. Robert Schuller went on record that he didn't want to bring up the subject of sin. Joel Osteen has also gone on record that he doesn't like to bring up the subject of sin. And so the message drifts to positive self-regard and self and self-esteem and self-help. And Jesus is the Son of Man in verse 19. And Jesus is accused of being a friend of outcasts and sinners. And how do you suppose Jesus would have answered that? True. True. True that. So what really is happening? The religious leaders suspected that Jesus didn't just simply befriend sinners. But there is the accusation that he actually participated in sin with the sinners. Is that true? It's not true. Did they have any proof that it was true? They couldn't have because none existed. Jesus came to the earth to offer deliverance from sin. Forgiveness of sin. Grace and mercy, generosity and love. William Barclay writes, quote, The plain fact is that when people do not want to listen to the truth, they will find an excuse for not listening. They don't even try to be consistent in their criticism. They'll criticize the same person and the same institution from quite opposite grounds and reasons, unquote. Modern critics are quick to point the finger and blame the church and other religions for the slaughter of, of people groups and violence. And our atheist friends will be the ones who will point out that most of the problems that exist in the world stem from religious fanaticism and I'm here to tell you that it isn't from religious fanaticism what it is is from profound unbelief and wickedness and a refusal to believe that there's a real God who loves you and cares about you it wasn't Christianity who ordered the slaughter of some 30 million plus people in the former Soviet Union or in North Korea or China. If you take the bodies and you stack them up that were killed by Pol Pot in Cambodia, that were killed by Lenin and Stalin, that were killed by Mao Zedong, the numbers would stagger you because it's more than all of the people who were killed in every single war in the 20th century. If they thought that John was in the funeral mode, they thought that Jesus was in the party mode. The religious leaders and haters lumped Jesus in with the party goers. Even today, I saw a headline that read that there's a group of Colorados who meet and smoke pot and get high and talk about God. At this very moment, the article said, I went over because this lady had posted in, in, at Craigslist, she's 40-something with a couple of kids, and she thought, hey, let's, let's smoke pot and let's talk about God. The lady responded to the Craigslist and she went over to the house and she's, this is her words, not mine, quote, the lady was so baked that she didn't even realize she had invited me over. Really? Is this really what's happening in our culture, in our society? There are people who will say, I really like Jesus because, you know, dude, Jesus was all about the party. He was all about having fun. 
It's clear that Jesus didn't live the life of an ascetic. He engaged in the normal activities of a normal Jew living in the first century. Jesus went to weddings. Jesus attended funerals, although after an intense research and an evaluation of the New Testament, my study revealed that every single funeral that Jesus went to, the person came back to life. Scholars debate whether Jesus drank fermented wine. He did, by the way. The religious leaders and the common folk who condemned John or Jesus had one thing in common. Neither were interested in the truth. And so it is with some of your family. And so it is with some of your friends. They're interested in asking the question, but they're not always interested in the truth. There are people who are willing to make up lies about Jesus and even about the church. Some will pay to have a billboard urging you to ditch church, but I'm here to tell you that many of you don't need an atheist to egg you on. You can find all kinds of reasons to ditch church. Not least of which is, doesn't matter. It's not important. Whatever's happening at church doesn't seem all that important to me. Until it is. Because if worship becomes a part of your life, if friendship and fellowship become a part of your life, if encouragement becomes a part of your life, then all of a sudden church becomes an important part of your life. Even the harshest critics of the church still find themselves stumbling over Jesus. They stumble over Jesus and they go, how do you explain Jesus? How do you explain his teaching? How do you explain his sacrifice? How do you explain his claims that he would die and come back to life? How do you explain the fact that when people have a relationship with him that they talk about a transformation that takes place that changes them forever? This is why that maybe one of the most important things that you could ever ask your family member or friend or neighbor is it it isn't just to simply argue or critique, just simply ask them the question. Tell me what you believe about Jesus. I'm not saying put words in their mouth. Let them tell you what they think. It might surprise you. How do you explain orphanages and hospitals and social service agencies founded by Christians? How do you explain angry, bitter, self-destructive people forever changed? John and Jesus couldn't be reasoned down, and so they're shouted down. Because if the truth couldn't condemn them, then it makes perfect sense to make up lies. And you see, if the truth, if the truth, if the truth, if the truth really is in the Bible, and if the truth, the truth is that people are in big trouble, if the truth is that sinners really do need a Savior, then all of a sudden we begin to understand what it is that we're doing here. It may be that wisdom is justified by her children as a proverb or or an aphorism, but we know that Jesus is wisdom incarnate. W.H. Griffith Thomas says, quote, God's wisdom in choosing his messengers and methods, his truth indeed always justifies itself, whatever man's attitude is towards it. And this is why Paul, with complete confidence, could say when he entered into any particular group, he said, I purpose not to know anything among you except for Jesus and him crucified. The unwise slander him, yet Jesus is vindicated by his word and his works. Though the religious leaders dismiss Jesus and the people forsake Jesus, 
The Messiah is vindicated by his miracles and the transformation of his followers because when Jesus says, I am going to go to Jerusalem and I am going to die and I am going to come back to life, all of those things take place. Now we switch to the apathy towards the, the king. Look at what it says in verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. I want you to think about what you're reading for a moment. Is he rebuking cities? I'm going to suggest to you he's rebuking the people in the cities. Sodom and Gomorrah don't go to hell. People go to hell. San Francisco and Los Angeles will not go to hell. People go to hell. Washington, D.C., well, there might be an exception. There might be one city that actually really does go to hell. But I'm going to suggest to you that for the most part, it's people. Who are these people? They're the people who willfully, deliberately deny God's message and God's messenger. This is the determined unbeliever unwilling to believe the message of John, unwilling to believe the message of Jesus. And who are the objects? People. These are the people who have an unreasonable opposition to Christ, who remain unmoved by his word, by his power. I want you to think about this. Opening blind eyes, opening deaf ears, cleansing the leper, power over demons, power over disease, power over disaster, and ignore it, ignore it, deny it, pretend like it never really happened. He says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven. Why is Capernaum exalted to heaven? Because of the presence of the Messiah, because of the sum and the substance of the Old Testament prophecies were coming true and Jesus has made Capernaum his headquarters. There has been no city that has received a comparable honor, an exaltation. That's the point that he's making. He says, but I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So what do we know about Chorazin? Next to nothing. I've been to Israel many, many times. I've been to Chorazin three times. It's a bunch of black basaltic volcanic rock that has been leveled. There's no evidence that anyone ever lived there other than the ruins. What do we know about Bethsaida? It's mentioned only casually. And then in John 21, 25 as being the location, the hometown, if you will, of some of Jesus' followers. We have a lot more information about Capernaum. Whatever else it means, it means that it leads me to believe that much of what Jesus did isn't necessarily mentioned or even recorded in the Gospels. But what is said in our Gospel is of immense importance. These cities are said by our Lord Jesus to be infinitely more guilty than Sodom, Tyre, Sidon. What do Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom all have in common? Jesus never went there. Why does Jesus pronounce such harsh judgment? By the way, Tyre and Sidon were Syrian ports to the north of Israel. They did receive messages from God's prophets and from God's word. And Jesus basically links their judgment to three things. 
privilege, pride, and punishment. We begin with privileges. The rebuke is linked to privileges. Jesus speaks of mighty works in verse 20 and in verse 21. Remember what those mighty works are. Those are miracles. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum were the scenes of powerful and public miracles. We've read about some of them already. Demon-possessed people being freed. Lepers being cleansed. The dead coming back to life. You would think that those kinds of miraculous manifestations would ensue a national movement of repentance. You would think that people would be overwhelmed. But here's what we know. Miracles don't always result in a change of heart, do they? By the way, do you have a family member, a friend, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister who've been a recipient of a bona fide miracle? God showed up. God spared their life. God did something gracious and wonderful and merciful. Sometimes they're even willing to acknowledge it. But for some reason, their heart never changes. By the way, there's no record that the people in Capernaum, in Bethsaida, in Chorazin, there's no record that the people in those cities tried to stone Jesus or run Jesus out of town. They didn't mount We hate Jesus campaigns. They didn't post billboards in their cities saying, ditch synagogue. They simply ignored him. They ignored him. He teaches. They ignore him. He preaches. They ignore him. He performs miracles. And it's just business as usual. These people didn't seem to care about the outcome or the consequences of Jesus' ministry. And the cities and the people were privileged with the presence of God and the power of God. And therefore, their responsibility was so much greater. There will be people who will take the atheist advice and they'll ditch church. Because the atheists do, in fact, at least get one thing right. And that is, if you come to church, and you hear the message, and you know the Bible, every single day that you ever show up, and every single message that you hear, and every bit of understanding that you embrace, the privilege translates into responsibility, and there's a greater and greater responsibility Each generation has unique privileges. And your generation, perhaps the most privileged generation that has ever lived. But what is the greatest privilege in the universe? I think you know the answer. It's to know the Lord Jesus. It's to experience forgiveness and hope. It's to be reconciled to God. So with privileges refused often comes pride. Why do I use the word pride? It's because of their rejection, and that's the reoccurring theme that Jesus brings up. They rejected. They refused. They did not repent. I use the word pride because of rejection. The people in the cities didn't repent in verse 20 and 21. They didn't believe the childishness is seen as perverse. They turned from from what is good to what was wrong. They acted contrary to the evidence. They opposed what was right and reasonable and acceptable to God. Spurgeon wrote, quote, pride is a stab at deity. It's an attack upon the undivided glory of God. Augustine wrote, the source of sin is pride. The people who put up the the billboard, 
I just want to ask you a question. Do you think that they go to bed at night and they think about God's judgment? No. Number one, let's just give them their due. Let's just, for purposes of discussion, concede that they really are atheists and they really believe there is no God. And because there's no God, there's no such thing as pride. And because there's no such thing as pride, there's no such thing as sin. And because there's no such thing as sin, there is absolutely no need for a savior. By the way, does their mistaken perceptions make it true? Is it possible to wish with all of your heart that there is no such thing as God and there is no such thing as sin and then God goes away and sin goes away? Pride invites judgment. And that's the third thing, punishment. And what is the appropriate punishment? Wicked Tyre and Sidon will fare better in Judgment Day than Chorazin and Bethsaida. Why? Because Chorazin and Bethsaida had greater privilege. Why? Because Jesus was there. Why was he there? To give a message of hope. Do you understand what Jesus is saying now? As he likens these people to a childish generation who refuse John's message and who refuse his message because it doesn't really matter to either. Jesus didn't speak in Sodom. He didn't cast out devils in Sodom. He didn't heal the sick in Sodom. He didn't raise the dead in Sodom. Sodom becomes a symbol of sin and judgment. Yet Jesus says Sodom is going to fare better and might even have repented had any of the things that were said that were said in those cities it was billy graham who said if god fails to judge san francisco he owes sodom and gomorrah an apology i think he's right but it can extend to any city it isn't just limited to San Francisco, San Diego, Las Vegas, Denver, Colorado. In the ancient world, Tyre and Sidon were goddess cultures. It was the place where you went in order to get away from all things Jewish. There were vast amounts of wealth. Modern equivalents would be San Francisco or be San Diego. Tyre was proud and evil and so proud and evil that Ezekiel compared the king of Tyre to the prince of darkness himself. Their immoral behavior was so profound and so severe that God ordered the destruction of the city and they were in fact destroyed by Alexander the Great and leveled and then rebuilt again. You know what's interesting about what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying he knows the fates of cities in the past, in the present, and the future. And he's making an extraordinary claim that everything that happens to everyone is dependent upon him. Jesus is making a remarkable statement that he's the judge of everyone and everything. Jesus is the judge for everyone who, who rejects him. See, this is the part of the Christian message. Jesus is the judge of no one who accepts him. He's the Savior. He's the gracious and kind Savior. He's the one who loves you and forgives you and cleanses you. And there are degrees of privilege. Do you know how we know that? Because of the words that Jesus himself uses. Why else would Jesus use the expression tolerable and intolerable? There's degrees of privilege. There's also degrees of judgment. 
Our response to the message of Jesus determines how severely he will judge. But he that knew not and did not commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For whoever much is given, much shall required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask much more, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. When you're given a great deal, you are, there is a great deal of expectation. Paul warned in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is what Paul is saying. Our atheist friends who post the billboard will say, I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to take my chances that there is no God and that there is no sin and that there is no such thing as judgment. No wonder they're encouraging you not to go to church. By the way, what if they're right? Then I'm missing the glorious party life. And what if they're wrong? What if they're wrong? What if everything in the Bible is true? What if everything that the Bible says about sin and salvation, forgiveness and hope, what if it's all true? The atheist billboard invites you, skip church. There are so many religions. How can you know which one is right? How do you know the Bible is even true? How can you believe anything about Jesus since all the witnesses in the first century were biased? Does the Bible predict things in advance? Isn't sin something that you really just make up in your own mind or according to the culture? How can Christians claim that Jesus is God? How can Christians claim that Jesus rose from the dead? Who cares if the Bible is true and if Jesus is God? And what difference does it make to me? And what about miracles? All of these are important questions. And by the way, you can ask me all of these questions on my radio program. I'll make an effort to answer each and every one. Do you want to know the answer? I'm going to suggest to you that there are two kinds of people. Those that want to know the answer and those that ask the question because they're not interested in the truth at all. The people Jesus is speaking of don't want the truth and they make excuses to resist the truth. Miracles don't matter for those who are committed to unbelief. In 1954, Reader's Digest told the story of President FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He got so tired of the smiling, fawning crowds greeting him in the White House that one day he decided to play a joke at a White House reception. He decided to see if anyone was paying attention. And so each person came up to the president, extended their hand, and he flashed that FDR big smile. And he said, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And people would respond with comments like, that's so lovely, Mr. President. Keep up the good work. Nobody listened to what he was really saying. Until a foreign diplomat extended his hand and the president repeated the refrain, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And the foreign diplomat was reported to have taken the president's hand and softly said, I'm sure she had it coming. (laughs) Are people really listening? to what Jesus is saying? Are we like the stubborn children playing a game, never satisfied with the outcome? Weep, I don't feel like weeping. Dance, I don't feel like dancing. Have you ever heard a child say, you're not playing fair? You're not playing fair. Some people refuse John's invitation to repent. 
And some people refuse Jesus' invitation to rejoice. How about you? How about you? Have you heard John's message and decided, I'm going to change my mind about my sin and my need for a savior, knowing that it's God who can change my heart. And by the way, once you've experienced a change of mind and a change of heart, then your life will change. Both John and Jesus invited their generation to change their mind and allow God to change their heart and to change their life. But remember what the atheist believes. There is no loving God who could ever change your heart, who could ever change your life. But I'm here to tell you that the changed life is the most persuasive evidence that repentance is real and repentance is true. And that we can change our mind. And we can believe the message that Jesus gave. And that he confirmed miraculously. His resurrection is the most persuasive evidence that he was who he says he is. And so go back to your family. Go back to your friends. Especially when they invite you to turn away. Ask them the question. To you, who is Jesus? Tell me what you believe about the Bible. What if everything that it says is true? What are you going to do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to do the work that only you can do. Lord, just like unruly children living in the generation of Jesus, there are still unruly children living in our own generation not in the least bit interested in repenting, not in the least bit interested in rejoicing. But Lord, we pray that we would be very interested because our sin is real and it can be really forgiven. And that our forgiveness is real And so that we have every reason to rejoice. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for the person who needs to repent. That's exactly what they would do. And for the person who needs to rejoice, that that's exactly what they would do. That they would be renewed in confidence, comfort, with the fact that Jesus is alive. And again, Lord, I pray for that person who for whatever reason has never experienced forgiveness of sin. Lord, I pray that right now that they would pray in their heart, Lord, please forgive my sin. Wash me and cleanse me. I believe that Jesus is the Lord, that he rose from the dead and that he's alive and he can change my heart. And I wanna walk with him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.